There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery. Code Wondery. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 989. Uh, if you're going to be in San Diego this weekend, March 8th and 9th, I will be at the American Comedy Company slinging jokes and then uh, the following weekend at uh, helium in portland and then uh, a bunch more dates coming up which i won't overwhelm you with right now but i think the new id10t site is going to launch the refreshed site sometime around march 20 or so but right now we have the um uh, special edition blood splatter uh uh, pops, Funko Pops of me <laughs> with blood splatter. And uh, those are on there and a handful of them are signed. So you might get a signed one in the mail. But if you ever see me in public and you have your Funko Pop with you, please do not hesitate to ask me to sign it. I will happily do that. Um, and so uh, there's that. We're going to, we have some ID10T, uh, the sort of the first edition ID10T t-shirts that are up there if you want to support the podcast. So just go to ID10T.com. The site is up and running now, but the refreshed, more robust site will be up uh, around March 20th. Uh, if you have a thing that you would like to promote, events at ID10T.com. You made a thing or a friend of yours made a thing or someone you don't even know made a thing that you want to uh, amplify and celebrate, then let us know. Like Laura, who writes... After years of hearing you say create something, I finally realized what I was meant to create, and that is a place to help people achieve their weight loss and performance goals. I'm a certified coach, and I've decided to branch out on my own and created Vitality Macros. I love helping people realize that food is not the problem. Food is the answer. This is a one-of-a-kind individualized nutrition coaching program that is completely customized for specific needs. Uh, website is vitalitymacros.com, and I would love to help uh, any fellow listeners achieve their goals. Um, that sounds great, Laura. Uh, I haven't seen the site yet, but I will check it out. And thank you for writing in, and congratulations on making a thing. Bill writes, we have a really exciting event coming up that I'd like to share. We're calling it the Electro Percussive Be-In. Think drum circle meets experimental electronic music, and you basically got it. We'll have drums, tambourines, synths, even a theremin. Oh, and lights. Really cool lights. Uh, it's at the Trenton Coffee House in Trenton, New Jersey. Totally free. Just bring good vibes and please buy some coffee. Yes, that is important. I can tell you having done a lot of uh, open mics at coffee places that, uh, you know, these types of businesses allow this sort of art and culture stuff because, you know, they're hoping that it will increase their sales. So when you don't buy stuff 
I mean, you don't have to, but when you don't buy stuff, it just makes it harder for to convince these types of businesses to do that kind of thing. So just know that buying a coffee or buying a dessert or pastry or something when you go to these uh, types of uh, culture events really does, in a way, support the arts by justifying the businesses letting them happen there. Uh, but this one in particular is at Trenton Coffee House, Saturday, March 23rd, 7 to 9 p.m. For more info and a link to the event on Facebook, visit... Uh, BillNobes.com B-I-L-L-N-O-B-E-S.com All right, this episode is my dear friend Kyle Newman who is the kindliest champion for nerds. He's just such a good dude. Kyle directed Fanboys. Uh, He's done a bunch of amazing things. And he and his wife, Jamie King, are very close friends of Lydia and mine. His wife, Jamie, was one of the officiators of our wedding. (laughs) So, and uh, Kyle is such a positive force of, you know, in the in the sort of the tabletop community, in the D&D community, and also, yeah, and he's just a good guy. He's just a really, really, really good guy. And he has um, helped put together a book called Dungeons and Dragons, Art and Arcana, A Visual History. That is fucking stunning. Um, if you ever had an interest in D&D or even, you know, even if you don't know D&D, it's just a gorgeous book. But essentially, um, it's a thick hardcover book that kind of gives you the history of D&D as told through the art of D&D, which any D&D player knows because I still have all my original books, is um, was a very beautiful journey um, as it kind of expanded, as the, as the world of D&D expanded. The art uh, really, really helped tell the story. So it's old advertisements and art from the books and stuff, and it is just a gorgeous book. Um, we recorded this podcast several weeks ago, so he does mention... He mentions that it was on sale at the time on Amazon. I'm not sure if that's still true. If it is true, great. If it's not, don't be like, why did he say that? Well, because we recorded this a bunch of weeks ago. But uh, anyway, definitely, definitely look into this book. You will not be sorry. There's nothing like it that I'm aware of. Dungeons and Dragons, Art and Arcana, A Visual History. And now uh, here is the ID10T podcast number 989. Oh, yeah. I just, I love the symmetry I love the symmetry of the 989. Uh, here's Kyle Newman. Uh, let's roll for initiative. Initiating ID10T protocol. Selected Lando Calrissian for his water glass. I'm rolling with uh, I'm rolling with Luke today. That's a good choice. Yeah, I feel. I just saw that photo today floated of Luke from the cut scene of Force Awakens for the cast somebody else to play Luke on ha- on uh, on Bespin. What? Did you ever see that? No. What do you mean? Yeah. This. Um, you mean like the like rather than. Digitizing a young Mark Hamill? Yes. And, and so they cast a, a dude and then they cut him out? They cut him and it was supposed to be... First, this picture was pretty great. Oh my God. What Was it... 
Was it a, a known actor or an unknown actor who just sort he's of an, looked? He's an unknown. So here's a better version of it. So these were, this is when the plot of the movie was about his, his hand got chopped off and how the lightsaber get there. So that sequence where she touches the saber and has a vision, mm-hmm. it was really telling you how the saber got to Maz. Mm-hmm. And then Kylo and the Knights of Ren steal it from an encampment. They take it from, they've had it, and then Maz sneaks in and steals it from them, and that's how it ends up back with Maz. So this, so this unknown actor was supposed to play young Luke Skywalker, and he gets cut out of the movie. So you can imagine getting cast. <laughs> you're like, wait, I'm going to get to play Luke Skywalker? Yeah, you're going to be Luke Skywalker. And then, no, you're not. They even had action figure plan. They were, it was in the line. There, everyone was wondering why there was a Luke Skywalker uh, Cloud City outfit action figure. And... I was wondering that, too. I was like, why is there a Vader and a Luke? What's going on? And it turned out that this was a deleted little moment (laughs) when when the movie was rewritten. I haven't seen – I didn't see the scene. I haven't – I've just been kind of working all morning, so I haven't actually seen the – how's the scene? I haven't seen the scene. You just see a little snippet of it still in the original – in the movie. It's still there, just a flash of Luke and Bespin, but it was supposed to be a bigger moment, I guess. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That sucks. I mean, for him, that sucks. For him, that sucks. How did they manage to hold on to that for a few years? Well, I don't know. This is the last image, I think, that slipped out of people sitting on top of secrets from The Force Awakens. What secret... Do you think there are still any unearthed secrets? Like, is there a sarcophagus somewhere under Marin County that has original stuff that are just like... Secrets that maybe most people except for George have forgotten. Multiple tombs. <laughs> Multiple tombs filled. I think there's still so many stories to be told, so much about the business of Star Wars, like who really controls what. Because there's other people getting cuts of that movie that aren't just George and the 1% that went to Spielberg off their Close Encounters handshake. Right. I think there's some other people in that uh, – financial waterfall there's a, there's an interesting story still to be told about those early days of of lucasfilm will it ever be allowed to be told i think at some point it will have to be told someone will do it find a way to do it it'll get out there maybe george will tell it himself maybe he will i don't know though i mean he seems to not want to be too much in the spotlight i mean he said uh a few years ago i I think I maybe I've told the story in the podcast before, but I had this really crazy experience where um, we helped with this charity auction. And so the, the prize was to have breakfast with George at Skywalker. And so I got to go and have breakfast with him and this, the dude that won and the dude's brother-in-law who helped him win. And, um, and George just said, like, they're like, oh, so what are you going to do? And he's like, I'm just going to, you know, I set aside some money to make some movies. And they're like, oh, you're going to release them? No. And, and yeah. it was like, it was. He, con- I think he's been making these experimental the, films. The concept was so mind blowing to everyone at the table. Like, so limited release? Like, we couldn't even understand that. He's like, no, literally not show anyone. So just like small screening? No, I'm not going. He just wants to go back to what he originally was, which was an, an art filmmaker. And just make experimental weird films, or not weird, I don't know, but then, and then not show them to anybody. But filmmaking is still about the connection to the audience, I, I think. I think part of that is the experience you're making it for 
it's largely a communal experience up until recently when it's just been you sit in your pajamas or at home it's and just a medium see. like a canvas like you could paint and never show it to anyone i used to do that i, I painted a lot and destroyed it everything i made through my 20s and i used to paint when i was a it's like a classically trained painter kind of kind of deal and and i've shown my wife jamie king some of the stuff and she's like why where, where is this stuff why don't you get back into it and i've thought about getting back into it but that is something i just do purely for myself or if i draw so i i get that i understand that that process that's so interesting though because it i mean at some point, it, I feel like it'd be, it's really hard to keep things secret. At some point, I would imagine that – has he made any? Do you know? I think he's made some. I don't know if they've <laughs> been exhibited. I had a really cool experience with George. I got to go – was, it was at the Academy and it was the greatest films that never won the Oscar for Best Picture. And we all know Star Wars got robbed by Annie Hall. And so they were honoring George and showing a, a screening of A New Hope. And I, I was sitting one seat away from him, and his daughter was in between us, and we were their guests, and we got to just listen to the banter between George and his daughter. She was ribbing him on all the lines, and he was kind of taking it and laughing at his own movie. So it was interesting. I mean, he could see the flaws in it. He knows it's, right. it's human. It but if you, but if man. you're but if it's 1977, and you're watching, you know, like you're looking at all the you know the the, the movies to pick for for best film of the year. I feel like people just didn't have a framework for that kind of movie yet. This just kind of weird space opera that was I mean, listen, if 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 you if it wasn't the thing that it became, I can see how if you're an Academy voter you'd be like, What is this hokey weirdness? you know? It it was very weird. But I, I and and I think we have the perspective now, this macro look at it to say, Wow, it did change all these things. <laughs> Literally everything. But it did and, have a cultural impact immediately. Of course it did. Oh my god, yeah. Like it was I mean, I remember I the was Academy there. was older. So maybe even then it was probably older and more close minded. So I could see why they didn't honor it. But it still got a lot of accolades and a lot of attention. Yeah. Very worthy, um, but yeah, you're right. It's it's hard. Like Woody Allen and Annie Hall, very fine film. But you look back, and you're like, no one's going to Annie Hall Con. <laughs> <laughs> no, there isn't any of that. No one's Star Wars. Up. Literally, we do have the we do have the historical perspective. I should just back up and tell everyone listening that I've known you probably for ten years, maybe you we and met your wife, in Austin. Texas, we met in Austin, Texas. Time. We came I, to see one of your shows. That's right. I was I was. I kind of became pals with your, I guess, then girlfriend at the time, Jamie King. Or were you married we yet? We were actually married. You were married by then. Yeah, because we were living, she was doing a show for ABC and we were living down in Austin for six months. That's and right. We didn't know anybody. And she's like, Chris is coming to town. And we didn't, we're like, oh, let's go see. Let's yeah, go you see came to Cap City. You came to Cap City. Yeah. I met Jamie on Attack of the Show. She was a guest and I interviewed her and she was really cool. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh my God, this. This girl has a a nerdy heart and yeah. uh, and and married the guy who made fanboys <laughs> and <laughs> and we had such a great time yeah. and we've been friends and then it turned out that Lydia and Jamie were like best friends separately and so now we now we're now we're just like part of a and Jamie was one of the officiators at your wedding she was yes she was that was amazing that really was amazing. That was great. That was really sweet of her to... Numerous trips to theme parks. Yep. 
Yep. And I met uh, Will, who's a treasure that you've uh, shared, your, your best friend. I've, <laughs> I love Will Wheaton. Got to meet him going yeah, to Horror Nights with you. it was shocking that you guys didn't know each other before, considering the crossover. Ernie Klein and Will. And, yep. and, and, and um, you know, Will had obviously read Ready Player One, and, and we were all fans, so it was, it was great to finally meet him. And But it's, 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 an, it's a really great community, I think, out here in, in Los Angeles and the, the nerd community. It is. It Everyone's is good. very supportive of each other. It is really supportive, which, you know, it, it, obviously fandom – and I, I, I like to talk about this with people who are in this specific community. Like, you know, it, is fandom broken right now? Like, are we in a good place with it? Is it, is it just because it's so big that there are a lot of negative voices controlling conversation? I mean, and the, the negative – the loudest and most negative voices tend to control most of the conversations across for any topic. Yes. And politics, religion um, – Social causes, entertainment are all dealt with with the same intensity because of those voices. Yeah. There's no nuance anymore. It's like people want to just – you know, a lot of people, the loud voices do seem to want to tear down because they seem to be the most committed yeah. uh, to, that, to that sort of you know, neg- negative cause. So are we in a good place with it or do you think like, yeah, it's just you – know, it's all the same. It's just the platforms are different than when we were kids. I think it's a couple of things. Platforms are absolutely different. I mean, you used to have, when you talk about Star Wars, you had Banth tracks. That was your, your community. It was like zine level. There was no internet. There was no shared community. Then when you have these things like Star Wars Celebration, you're getting together with people and you see, wow, this is still a vibrant, rich and healthy community. People are really coming together. You have 50,000 people. You go to places like Comic-Con, there's still a general positivity. But then when you do go online, there is a... There's a negativity and a malaise, and it it almost turns me off. Like, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, but I will say the last year has been probably the hardest for me. Just I, I wasn't a massive fan of the last film that came out. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know why, but it's had this um, this effect on my, my fandom. And a lot of it's due to the, the conversation, the discourse online. It's like I can't escape it. There's, it's like there's, it's still being put in my face. Every day. I just you don't want, even want to talk about you it. You want to have a reasonable conversation, but there aren't – like the places that you see are And you can't. And I can't even engage had. in a reasonable conversation. Because someone will come in and go, you fucking don't piece of shit. You're like, exactly. okay, well, this is not – And look, I, I, want to, I want to talk about story. I want to talk about form. I want to talk about the narrative. I want to talk about the technique. And it immediately gets reduced to, well, you're probably alt-right if you don't like The Last Jedi. You're like, wait, what? No. Nor am I a Russian bot. You know, I just want to talk about it on a narrative level why it doesn't necessarily work for me and what the merits inherent in it are. There are some really wonderful things in it too. So I can't be conflicted in, in, in social media. You have to be one thing and stand it's, for one thing and, yeah. and, and tattoo it on your face. I feel like I've been using the word binary so much on the podcast, but that's what – It's absolutely binary. Th- like the larger a group gets, the more binary the positions are. Yeah. Whereas – you know, when you shrink a group down or you get down to one-on-one or you go into some of the smaller subreddits, you can have nuanced conversations. You can agree. You can disagree. You can compromise. But but on a scale, you know, the larger the group gets, the more binary the positions get. And then it just becomes impossible to yeah. to have. The- I've actually said, you know, for the past year or so, I'm, saying, I'm not talking about star wars anymore publicly it doesn't serve me i'm doing right. it right now i'm breaking it but i'm explaining why <laughs> but you're I've not going into detail it. no i'm just it just it's not it, it doesn't make me happy to do it and i'm just gonna seek things that that do make me happy and i put another foot into dungeons and dragons and i feel like that community is in a much more positive place there isn't a divide and i think it's because you know what they're putting out there is something that is tapping into 
old nostalgia and at the same time doing something fresh and exciting and it's not alienating in any way it's actually really inclusive well it's inclusive yes because the very nature of how the game is played is by definition a small community of people you know collaborative storytelling it's collaborative to work together you have to be together you really i mean i'm sure you you know i'm sure you can play via um you know network but in its perfect form, you're in a group of six or eight people, and you're all facing each other. You know, using your imagination. It's analog. Creative. Yes, you're actually using pencil and paper. You're yes. rolling dice. You're touching things other than your phone without getting those updates that said you've been online for seven hours <laughs> and twenty four minutes. Twelve of those have been on Twitter. You know, it's it's just too much. And so it's nice to get face to face with people. Put your technology down and do something as like a little community, as a little family. Yeah, I somewhere I still have my original D and D books. Um, I don't, I don't have like the original, original, like those papery versions oh, yeah. that like that came in the box of like three the little wood manuals. box. Yeah, yeah. Um, in 1974, I think yeah. it was. But but I got mine probably in I don't know 80 or 81 or something. Yeah. That original. Where the you know, like the monster manual and the, the DM guide and the fiend folio. the hardcovers are like yeah, seventy hardcovers, yeah. like all these really great hardcovers and and the I had placed maybe the monster manual I, I had hamsters and I placed it on top of the hamster cage because they kept getting out somehow and they chewed no. circles in the back of one which now is kind of a weird badge of honor it's like yeah you it know, survived it survived like the hamster. Didn't make the throw and it didn't get out, uh, <laughs> but he did do damage to the book. No, those are somewhere, but so you know, my my history with D and D goes back to eighty or eighty one, and I remember there was a mini ex- there was an explosion of D and D, and then role playing games like all these other. I think Boot Hill was there was a Western one called so Boot Hill. Boot Hill, yeah. And then there was a spy one that I can't remember what it was called, and then there were a few more. There was a. Top is a top secret. Top, it might it might have been, and then the Ninja Turtles, Palladium, and I used to play Steve Jackson's GURPS and Car Wars, and I played the West End Star Wars. There was the eighties had a a huge explosion of of RPGs, all inspired by D anD D and its success. But man, the early eighties and and Dungeons and Dragons, it was just it, it, it's like a rock and roll time because there's so many it became heavy metal i think fused with the satanic panic it had like a, <laughs> it had a, a permanent underground screw you vibe to it where it was a little renegade you know people didn't understand it but the people that did had to like entrench in it and well you had the storm. you had to work you had to i mean anything that you put an, an emotional investment into or a financial investment into or a time investment into yeah. Um, is going to like the more investment you put in, the more special it's going to be. And you really had to, you had to do a lot of work to seek out other players, get the equipment, learn how to play the game without being able to go online and quickly look up rules. You had to go to a hobby shop or a game shop and, you know, wait to meet people. And, uh, and, you know, it was typically these groups of people who were generally historically outcasts from other groups like yes. it was the sort of the trilam groups yeah it was just like you know <laughs> give us your tired your poor your nerds you know yeah. just like all in one group and so we you really had to work for it and seek it out it was not it was not easy to there's a couple of kids from band a couple of trench coat mafia types a couple of kids <laughs> from metal shop right a couple of uber nerds mm-hmm. it was a whole mix of people and i got along with everybody so that's how, how i kind of got into the 
the the groups, you know. But I didn't play at first. I was peripherally involved. My older brothers played, and they would go to Boy Scout camp and be up there for a week, and I'd visit them. And in their tent, they'd be playing their own homebrew version with, of D&D TSR rules, but Indiana Jones. or It'd be something different, but they were so into it that they would do their own thing. And I would just flip through the books. And that's how I learned how to draw was – flipping through monster manuals or yep. looking at the modules. So I was like Elliot and E.T. I was like not allowed at the table, not in a mean way, but I was just around because I was too little to really grasp the concepts because it's really a game that kicks off when you're 10, 11, when you can be, when you can read, when you can do all the math and you can kind of handle some of those concepts and it gets very R-rated. So it was always part of my life, but I wasn't, directly in it until I was more like 11 or 12. What do you think it is about... Uh, I, I, I'm always fascinated by the the allure of particularly nerd culture to fantasy. And I guess I always sort of justified it by, you know, most nerds did not enjoy their reality. And so they were very good at... Or maybe by survival, emotional survival, were excellent at conceiving these fantastical worlds, these idealized or, you know, uh, magical realms where they were empowered or where they could, you know, to some degree control what happens or create a new identity, create a new identity. A lot of those things are, are, I think, are very visceral and real, like new identity, creating a world, escapism, control. Yeah, being a part of something. You all don't have, and there's a group that does it, and then you finally have, you belong to something that you're not doing on a greater scale socially back at school. I think that's, that's definitely all part of it. I, I don't know if it was just that for me because I, I wasn't like it. And I, I got along with everybody, but I didn't really fit in anywhere, but I still love this storytelling aspect of it. I like that you could go and do anything. Um, but it wasn't something you just, you, you were openly talking about in, Middle school or high no, school, it was like, either. It was like a, fun, but it was kind of like a fun secret that yeah. you had, and you know, having a, a twenty-sided die in your pocket, if it was just a totem for something for something really special. But don't it? it I mean, it can't. It's obviously not a coincidence that you know. Obviously, D and D came out in seventy four, but let's just say. You know, Star Wars is 77, and between 77 and 84, you have this explosive rise in personal computing, genre, sci-fi, fantasy films, D&D, video games, home video games. They all are happening at the same time. And so it, it is what's the connective tissue between all of those things and that, that period being such fertile soil between technology and also, you know, um, storytelling because the people consuming it and playing it, I don't know if all those creators of those things, um, you know, Nintendo and George Lucas and, and all these important, you know, transformative, visionary guys who were part of that eight year period, 10 year period. I don't, they, I don't know if they were all the nerds or the outcasts, but they were the ones building these tools in these games. Um, you know, Gary Gygax wasn't totally, uh, you know, like a quote unquote freak. You know, he was just like a guy who was a cobbler and he was like, I like these war games and I'm going to evolve it into this. But yet everyone took to it and who took to it was, was a lot of the, you know, the, uh, maligned and misunderstood teenagers, 
And so I think that's that's what's fascinating. Um, you know, Nintendo, this product out of Japan, suddenly was in everybody's household. I know, but there, but it's but it but there's something that happened culturally that was unrelated but related. Yeah, that all of these things are coming together. Apple computers, like ev- like all arcades, of, and all, yes, all of these things are happening. At the, the whole same time. culture and it overlapped. It overlapped in a healthy way where you could be into. Um, a certain type of music. You could be into Star Wars. You could also be into video games. It was all, it was, it all like coalesced into uh, like the this moment. I guess and metal too. Yeah, and metal. Yeah, <laughs> and um, you look at it now, and there's a lot more subdivisions. Everything has to be really classified, and there's overlap, but it's um, the communities are much more codified. Whereas there it was like this zeitgeist thing. Something just happened with nerd culture and exploded in every direction. Um, It's really fascinating because you look at all that stuff now. It's still what people go back to in mind as they look forward. It's still what they're tapping into um, when they're looking for properties. It's it's just as important now as it was, I think, when it kind of – started permeating the culture on a mass level. Are we, and not, not to, I don't mean to veer back into Star Wars yeah. too much, but <clears throat> can we at least admit that it's very difficult? Like when you saw, when we saw things as kids and we think back about how when we were growing up, everything was amazing and new things suck now, at least admitting to ourselves, like when you're a kid, and you see some, you know, like you, you haven't had a lot of experiences yet and you see something that fundamentally expands the, your, your mental horizons. You have these transformative experiences and those types of transformative experiences just become less and less likely the older you get because you're more experienced. You've seen more things. You're kind of used to it. You've seen. And so, you know, to be comparing, to look at. You know, new Star Wars films or new anything now and go, oh, this new stuff, I don't know, you know, back in the old... It's like, yeah, but you were a kid then and everything was bigger to you when you were a kid and everything was more impactful when you were a kid. So how do we... That is the challenge. How do we appreciate things on a grading on a curve? But you... I don't know if you necessarily have to. You might have to. I think there are ways... You might have to compartmentalize things. But you can make a new Star Wars film without having it subvert purposely everything that came before it. You can still go take the tools, the hope, and the scope, and everything that George established and all these other creators, and move into a fresh new direction without having to undermine everything that came before. I don't you can know. do that in a healthy way. I don't know if that's possible, though, because it's still... If it's... If it's too much of a new direction, then that group of people complains. Then that group of people complains. It's just that because there's no like centralized judgment body, it's just whoever's the most annoyed. Yes. So no. Well, like fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. I got back into that in 2015. That's why I started writing the book. That was one of the most important things about. It was a whole new experience. It was one of those moments. Like I was a kid. I was like, I want to do this all the time. This is amazing. I don't want to live in the real world. I want to just keep doing this. <laughs> it, was, it was that. It simplified the gameplay. It simplified it, but I had taken such a break from the game. And then when I got back into it, it was, it was like a whole new thing. It felt like I was a teenager discovering again for the first time. Yeah. Everybody that got into it, the same experience. And that's why um, – and it was a pure thing. It, it didn't feel like it was muddled by – expectations from the past and maybe it's because i took like a a 12-year 
hiatus from it and came back in strong. And then mm-hmm. I was like, well, where's the book on the history of it? What did I miss? Mm-hmm. You know, and there wasn't one. But I think I got back into it in such a big way and, it, and, and in such like an honestly pure way where it didn't feel like I was, oh, is it as good as this? And I was comparing it. I Maybe it's a testament to what they did and how they simplified it, or maybe it's just the the break I took from it. Um you know, maybe someone was like, you need, maybe you need a little break from something to go back and look at it with the perspective. But I, I feel like I did have that fresh experience where it wasn't contaminated by the past. It wasn't totally contaminated by nostalgia. It wasn't, um, I didn't have to compare it. Mm-hmm. You and just, you got to, you got to start, you almost kind of got and I to can, start. I can normally separate that with, with, with things I love. I like the Star Wars prequels, you know, and I know they're, they're made differently and they are... Um, they're a different time and people grew up and expected something, but, uh, respect to George was inclusion of very, very big ideas, virgin birth and chosen one. Like he didn't have to go there. And visually he expanded the language of star Wars with those films and on a technological level, which I think is something that is, um, missing from the new Disney installments. And I think it's because of the pace they put it out. There is no innovation is not also synonymous with the brand of Star Wars. So they're not really taking you anywhere new in terms of cinema technique or CGI. I mean, you look at the Phantom Menace, and they're like, everyone hates that movie because they say it's the most CGI film they've ever seen. Yet the Phantom Menace has more model effects in it than any other film in history times two. It's the most model heavy, detail craft oriented film ever made he made it independently with his own money but it was sold and marketed at the time in 1999 as cgi because they thought this is what we're going to sell you the future and you look at the the force force awakens and they could not stop talking about how old school how much model work was in it how many puppets yet there's probably more cgi in the force awakens than (laughs) in the first act of the Phantom Menace. Although the, the, the funny thing that which is incredible, the, the things- entire third act is a, is a CGI cutscene. I like the movie, but I'm just saying it's the way you sell the product, right? And they're selling us nostalgia and you know tangible models and puppets. Yeah, and, and 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 Phantom Menace was selling us the future, and we believe these stories. We believe it. Everyone's going to go, oh, The Force Awakens was such a throwback. It was all puppets. And you're like, no, what? <laughs> no, and, the, and the Phantom Menace was all. George George did say something at this breakfast that was really funny because it was a subtle acknowledgement of, you know, he said something like, uh, we were talking about technology, and he said, you mean, yeah, everyone wants to, you know, trash Jar Jar Binks, but without Jar Jar Binks, there wouldn't have been an avatar. In other words, like, we, you know, like, it was the foundational technology that led to, you know, that, that Jar Jar was essentially sort of a gateway to this higher form of CG that was around the corner. Characters like Watto and Sebulba in the Padre sequence, they're still better than like visual effects in movies Fox was putting out in 2017. <laughs> That's 1999. It's like, it's astounding how on, how on point it was. You look at Jurassic Park and the dinosaurs in that movie, they're, they're, they're still, still better than movies. They're still better than most things. That came out this summer. <laughs> how is that possible? I don't know. Do people not care? I don't know because we do... We do have this sort of like assumptive Moore's law in our head that it's like it's always going to get better. And you look at stuff and you're like, no, I still, you know, it's like I think it's it's the integration. It's it's I think how filmmakers choose to integrate. And I there's a lot of impossible angles. Like I love the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but the stuff that's the worst for me is when they have those cut scenes through, um, 
you know, through orc encampments and you go like underground, you're swooping through, it's like the most impossible camera move ever. And then you feel the CGI. Uh, But when it's, and when it's incorporated, I think in organic ways with camera angles that are just germane to standard filmmaking, then you can work some real magic in it. I think, you know, you can't deny the character animation innovation that was on display in, in Phantom Menace, say whatever you will about the, the movie, but he put $115 million of his own money and made an independent film and said, I'm not listening to any executives. I'm not listening to anybody. I'm going to go make my movie the way I want to make it. And that's what's in my head. Yeah. That's rare that somebody has a, the resources to do that, B the, the fortitude to go do it and C can just go see it through. How fucked up would it be in, a, in an amazing way, in, a, in an amazing way? If one of the experimental films that George was making was basically another Star Wars movie that he just isn't telling anyone about, I, I would love that. I know he was he was developing this new trilogy himself, and I think well, fans just turned him off. He says, "Why would I want to make a Star Wars film when everyone hates me?" So that's one of the reasons he sold the brand is because of the polluted social media and 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 fandom. I mean, he was developing a whole new trilogy. That was I mean, his. That is is, and he was going to shoot it on his property up at up near Big Rock, and he was making a new studio. And San Francisco didn't want him up there and wouldn't let him build. And it coincided with negative you know, fan stuff. And he was just like, all right, fuck all y'all then. <laughs> all right. You know, and, and he, uh, you know, in his in respect to what his original vision was, he's like, I'm going to set up this world and I'm going to let other filmmakers come play in it. Mm-hmm. And that was always his vision. And nobody wanted to come play with in 1999 and 2002 and 2005, he ended up doing those himself. He reached out to other filmmakers and he was going to try and produce it like he did with Irvin Kirshner and Richard Marquand, but nobody, nobody stepped up. He went to guys like Zemeckis and Howard and Spielberg. And, you know, it's interesting that Howard finally comes back and, and does solo. But at the time he wasn't going to direct them all, but he did it because he, I, maybe people were afraid. Yeah, now that we're talking about this, I guess the prequels were really sort of the beginning of the modern era of mass angry fandom. Yeah. Because that's right about when, you know, everyone has the internet, you know. I mean, not everyone really had broadband in 99, but everyone had the internet. You know, most people had AOL accounts, chat rooms. You know, people were that's really... That's why we and did fanboys exactly where we did, because I felt like it was the, that was the schism. Everything split after that. There was a there was a pure time where it's just like the nostalgia, optimism. You're looking forward to what things could be, versus the, the minute the movie starts and you get out of the theater and it's not what you thought it was going to be and it didn't age with you. And we had that nostalgia time you're talking about from 1974, 1984, that time where it was so foundational for people. And then we expected us selfishly it, for it to age with us. We had Matrix earlier that summer in 1999, and everyone wanted Star Wars to be like Matrix. Like, where are these visual effects? Where are these POVs? But Star Wars was always a more objective myth. And so we really wanted it to grow up with us. And I guess George didn't want it. He's like, no, I'm making a movie for eight-year-olds. Well, that's what I'm interested in. <laughs> just, just deal. <laughs> and I have nieces and nephews and young kids, and my my two sons are really into Star Wars now. They're three and five, and I didn't force it upon them in any way. They just naturally started to discover it. You know, they got books from people for birthdays, and they started to read, like, Darth Vader and me, and they just started to really love the characters. And they like characters like Jar Jar Binks and Sebulba and, and Watto and, and Hayden Christensen. And we got to, they got to meet Hayden Christensen, and it was like meeting God. It was, it was amazing. Cause they're like, it's Anakin. 
And for them, it's not like it, it, they weren't compared. They just looked at all the Star Wars films in an honest way and like, oh, I like all, all these movies. Now, most people would say like, hey, fuck you. I get to have my own opinion. Sure. And I would say, yes, of course. But I would with two caveats. Number one, you don't have to express your opinion in the most murderous way possible exactly. the most toxic language possible there's a difference between expressing your opinion and just wanting to destroy something you know probably because you're unhappy but but also you know what do you think the percentage of what's the percentage of rage that is purely not really about the fandom thing but just more about the empowerment of being able to destroy something that's a little bit more for you know, like I'm lashing out at the world because I'm unhappy about something. Like what what percentage of the conversation do you think is being controlled by opinions that and again, I'm you know, I want to be careful about how I phrase this, but respectfully, but aren't necessarily fully about the thing. You know what I mean? That I, they're just not necessarily as I guess all opinions are subjective, but I mean, you, do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, I actually feel like just taking, you know, Star Wars for an example right now, I feel like the last year, um, it wasn't even about the content. It was just about a lot more. Like Solo took a hit on the chin because people didn't like another film. You can say whatever you want. It definitely suffered a bit at the box office because people had like fatigue from Last Jedi. That's uh, That's like... Fact, financial I mean, fact, and and then people are going on talking about these things because because they can, and they're going to be negative about it. And I think that's it's inescapable, though. And I and I think it is fused with other things more than just purely analyzing the content that was put in front of you. It's heavily fused with just other anger. Yeah, I mean, because it. I guess a, a more crystallized version of what I'm saying is there's a difference between saying like I don't like this movie and hey, let's give this a 2% on Rotten Tomatoes. Let's collectively go out and campaign to tear this thing down. And to me, that's not necessarily the same as... Like, that's just more campaigning for anarchy than it is yes. about... And that's not healthy. About that's not fandom. good. Yeah, that's... I have a real basic philosophy. And treat other people and strangers greater than equal. If everybody did that, we would have no problems in the whole world. If everybody just approached, I give everybody more than the benefit of the doubt before I, I know them or what they're going to do. You treat everybody as a stranger greater than equal. And if we did that, we wouldn't have all the problems. And the internet is exactly that place. Everyone uses the anonymity to spew vitriol and, and all their angst and project it onto everyone else. Yet there, there's no basic decorum. There's no code for it. And I guess that's what's hard for like older nerds like myself who remember pre-internet era and like, guys, there was a time where we didn't have all these awesome things. Like we really had to – I mean even to say that there was an explosion of stuff between 77 and 84, it's still – Minuscule compared to the explosion of things that we have now, and there's even you know there's more people playing D and D now than there yeah. were. And when you would consider that that time is when it first exploded, and it's like, can't we just have nice things? Like, can't we just not unload all our personal baggage and imprint it onto things that it's not necessarily about? Still be able to express our, you know, like not liking of something, but just. Not having the goal of like, let's fucking burn it all down. You know, like I think that it's, really it's makes media my heart age, sad. Modern media age in general. It's like Nixon onward. It's like the the Woodstock Vietnam generation onward. It's the disillusionment and then people feel like, you know what, I'm I'm gonna go protest it. I'm gonna be okay to be vocal about it. And I don't just wanna perpetuate a, a, a 
a, a singular reality that everyone is trying to make me stick to. Yeah, I mean, listen, and everyone's okay to just express sh- your opinions, yeah. you know, but also like, what's your goal? Like, what do you want to achieve? Most people's goal is is anarchy or upsetting someone else. It because really they, is. You want to get under someone's skin? Yeah, because skin. they don't have to. You're not going to win an argument on the internet. <laughs> There's no award for that. And no one's ever been awarded a, you are the winner of the internet. It doesn't happen. It's like, I've waited out of all those conversations and realized, you know, that if someone enjoys it, that's amazing. If you enjoy something that someone else doesn't, great, let them enjoy it. Like move along, but you don't have to sit there and, and, uh, you know, pick it apart and pick them apart consequently. Yeah. I mean, if you, you know, if you, if you're just some random nerd in any town USA, and you're generally dissatisfied, and then all of a sudden you have the power to like potentially get something unmade. Wow, that's. I mean, you you yeah. can sort of understand, and it's no skin off your nose. You don't know any of these fucking people. It was like, but that symbiotic relationship was established by studios that go to Comic Con and they would make people feel like how important they were. Yeah, this, this you get to see this exclusive trailer early, and you know your buzz. Oh, Comic Con didn't like this. Oh, this so is you need oh, us. Comic Con liked it. Yeah. Oh, you need us. Yeah. You know. Oh, well, how can we use that? Well, which is which is just like you know. Let's not forget there were a time when, you know, this these communities were heavily ostracized. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, and so I think in a way, that's why I feel like of all groups that should understand why you shouldn't go and, you know, be narrow minded and tear down for the sake of tearing down or bully people. It's like the group that was torn down and bullied, you know, the proto group that was torn down the and exact bullied. same. Yeah. Thing. It's like, guys, no, come on. This is a nice playground. Can't we all just, you know, it saved my, my film fanboys. That was a star Wars community went online and talked and was really vocal about it. And then we went through some troubles and ultimately that community became very vocal about me getting the, the movie back. And it was like this weird thing where the internet spoke and in a way they had to listen. And that was bizarre. It was bizarre because it had nothing to do with the, the, the business of the industry it had nothing to do with the merits of what what anyone was doing behind the scenes. It was just fan reaction. Yeah, and do you, you know to make a movie about fandom? Did you feel like you yourself was elevated as a spokesman for fandom in some way that you didn't necessarily want? Uh, not in that way. I felt the 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 extreme obligation to to do what I to what I set out to do and promised to do to George Lucas, to, to Lucasfilm. I said, I'm not going to, I will poke fun at the brand, but I will not disparage the brand or the fans period. And I won't, I don't want my name on that. And I think, and, and their ideas of how to make the movie bigger and more mainstream, like, well, this is a, there's a lot of fans, but we can also make fun of them and let's do this with the opening crawl and let's recut the movie and let's add some stuff that's kind of throwing the community under the bus. And both those things violated me and my moral code as a filmmaker and what I promised because I was playing in someone else's sandbox. And also I think, you know, our stuff with the brand, cause we had a very strict PG 13, um, final rating with them and they were mm-hmm. pushing it into, into our territory and kind of testing how far George would let them, go with things. So I felt that obligation to just, to everyone I promised, everyone I hired, to everyone I cast, we all were on the same page and we said, we want, this is what the tone of what we want to make. This is the spirit of it. And we don't want to deviate from that because that's the important message. This is how you honor fandom and a time period. 
um, authentically, and we all experienced that. We were part of that. So he said, we know what this needs to be. Do you think there will ever be in this sort of extent? By the way, how healthy is the Star Wars cinematic universe right now? Is it going to expand as much as we had thought it would after Force Awakens, or are they paring it back a little bit? I think it's going to – it might take a step back so it can go two, step, two steps forward. I think it's going to keep expanding. Star Wars is, I think, the preeminent um, gold standard franchise. Disney knows that. Um, Marvel has had a wonderful moment. I don't know how long it will sustain considering where they can go with characters. I think as a world – Star Wars has built a world in the same way J.K. Rowling has built a world with Wizarding World. Star Wars has the preeminent world that everyone wants to play in. It's hard to go play in in Middle Earth. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so strictly spoken for and written, and there's a very finite tone to it all. Right. Star Wars, there's room to go do things in it. I think that's what's exciting about it. And they're figuring that out. I know when they made Rogue One, One, they said it's not going to feel like a Star Wars film. But ultimately, they spent another hundred something million dollars in reshoots, and they made it feel like a Star Wars film because they realized, well, that's what it is. It's its own genre. <laughs> Star Wars is a genre. It's not. You can't go I make Star Wars other way. genres. It I is a catch-all for all the. It's it's screwball comedy. It's western. It's samurai. It's pulp. It's space fantasy. It's all coalesces into something alchemic, and. You don't go and say, I'm just going to go make a war film. It's called Star Wars. It is a war film. You don't go and say, I'm just going to go make a samurai film. But that's not what it is. It's more than that. Well, then, is it – do you think they'll ever get gritty with it and do like uh, like horror or uh, like a Star Wars even R-rated, you know, like something darker? Or does that just completely violate the brand? I know George himself developed that – Underworld series, and it was supposed to be much more R-rated, Deadwood style. Um, there is that elasticity in the brand to do that. I, I don't think the, the time is right now. now. I, I wonder if the fans would stand for that, if they'd be like, yes, yes you've soiled the... Like, they don't need another reason to feel like things are changing that dramatically. So if they do do that, I feel like it's pretty far off. But a fucking R-rated, Deadwood style Star Wars movie... In some on some outpost somewhere, yeah. Would be I think the, the Mandalorian show looks looks wonderful. That's yeah. co- that's coming next year. Um, that's going to borrow some more Western tropes, but I think it's that's probably going to get a little darker. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the tone is, but it could for sure, and I think it could still work and fit right in. Television's a great place to experiment experiment with some of those ex- expanded tones and textures rather than doing it on the you know, on a two hundred fifty million dollar movie with. Four hundred more million dollars of marketing behind it. I think you can, you can test the threshold of the brand and other mediums. Yeah, I think they're going to. They have to because they're building two massive theme parks right now. But also, yeah, and and you and I was just at Disneyland a week last week, and you know, every time you ride Big Thunder, you just you get to the crest of Big Thunder and, and you, you see, see Star Wars. Land. You see home. Yeah, and you <laughs> like you see all the scaffolding of the, and it looks incredible and it's supposed to be obviously you know very the riverboat cruise has a has a good look i finally did that it had been years and i saw like some of the the rocks and you get really close it's, it's just i mean it's so funny to me that <laughs> you know one of the things that they replaced the trade-off is like well let's see goat petting zoo or star wars like yeah um Star Wars, I guess. I'm going to miss that barbecue ranch, but uh, <laughs> yes, I will take. Yeah, they uh, did square dancing there, but I guess maybe Star Wars. Yeah. I guess I'm going to go I'll ahead. I'll take and Planet Batu. I'm, I'm, I'm in. 
<laughs> but, you know, again, because we are in positions where we can... By the way, would you... I, I do want people to understand also that things are never as easy as they seem. Like when, when people sit at home and they fantasize like, well, if I were in charge of the franchise, this is what I would do. There is a certain level of Dunning-Kruger effect where it's like... You don't know enough to know what you don't know about how things work. So to yes. say, like, well, I would have just done this. It's like you're dealing it's with way more complicated. It's so complicated. Egos There's, and personalities. And, yes, and, and line items on and entertainment on a, politics and, and you know corporations and licensing and you know it's like you you basically with a brand like Star Wars you have to satisfy like a thousand different things somehow. And make it all... And somehow stay true to what, what you think is the, the code, the laws of the brand. It's, it's incredibly daunting. And I think it's, it's still threading a needle just like George had to do with the, those original films. But it can be done. I look at Return of the Jedi as one of the boldest independent films because he took Darth Vader, the greatest villain of all time, and said, rather than just doing a layup and making him the villain, he's like, I'm going to humanize him. And I'm going to then create an even scarier villain. And I'm going to make this message at the end of the movie about rejecting your elders. And Yoda and Obi-Wan are wrong. And Luke throws down his saber and doesn't even listen to advice. He goes in all these directions he didn't have to do. He didn't make the easy film. And everyone's like, oh, it's got Ewoks and blah, blah, blah. But the film itself is pretty bold. In hindsight, we look at it and we go, oh, it's just, it's whatever. It's It's Ewoks. (laughs) But those choices on a business level... On, on, a, on, a, on a creative level, on a, on a financial level, there's a lot of risk with $35 million of your own money and saying, I want to take the greatest villain of all time and, and make him a good guy now. And Yeah, but that's also just kind of honoring – I mean that idea of a trilogy yeah. you know, of like really sort of like wrapping something up in three movies and having this large arc, it – I still think it was a satisfying end because yeah. the basically the value of so many of the main characters changed. Han Solo changed, Leia changed, Luke changed. But Luke's Darth arc Vader changed. is probably the the greatest hero arc on film in three movies. It's a fantastic character arc. It I don't think it's been duplicated in the last fifty years in terms of like a hero of a franchise. I mean, I can't name one that has the same type of breath as, as Luke Skywalker's. There's been great stuff in literature, but Luke's is like iconic. Did you mind when you, anytime you spent with George Lucas, was there, were there questions that you were like, I got to ask, I just got to ask. Did you, did you ask questions, things that you wanted to know, or were you pretty, did you try to be I, No, I never did. I have a list. I'll get to you. It's, it's on my phone. I have a list of the, the questions that, that uh, I want certain answers to at least inklings i don't necessarily want the direct answers but maybe in a in a cryptic yoda type way you can port, point me in the direction where it's it's hidden in the scripture yeah um and i've decoded a lot of those movies and i think i really understand why they work and why expanded universe worked and what the importance of these things were in that brand and and it's how it endured, why it endured. So is Expanded Universe, the Expanded Universe got reset with Force Awakens. Is that pretty much how it worked? Yes. So, <laughs> so all, of that, all the stories and all the things that people have been working on for, you know, 35 it, years or whatever, just like. It became legends. I mean, it's still there for you to go enjoy. It's, you can go pick up the book off your bookshelf and you can go read Timothy Zahn's 
Heir to the Empire Trilogy, which is fantastic. Or The Dark Lords of the Sith book, another wonderful, uh, you know, novel. I've read all of them, and I don't feel let down by the fact that they did that. It was almost, in a sense, they had to because so much had been created, and you can't go make a filmmaker like J.J. Abrams be beholden to all this prior history. If you're trying to work with the upper echelon of filmmakers and writers and producers, you have to say, you know, we're going to give you a relatively blank slate and let's use the the films as the doctor. Yeah, because I guess at that point it would be so difficult, like everything would violate something. Jaina Solo was their daughter and there was a there was one and it was never official canon, but something that I always wanted to see made, there was a um a story called Skippy the Jedi Droid. And it was the idea was that R five D four was basically the spirit of this Jedi that essentially I believe helped lead like help sort of connect the dots to get Luke to where he needed to be. And I think they were part, maybe justifying and he, like, and he blew his own motivator. So yeah, 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 yeah. He throws the game. I did hear about this. So how did, well, what was this? Skippy, the Jedi droid is an eight page comic story featured in star Wars tales. Number one, written by Peter David it takes place shortly before episode four and features R five D four as Skippy. Uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi leaves a cantina sensing the force in someone, but no matter how hard he looked, he wasn't able to find anyone, despite his great ability in the force. Suddenly, unbeknownst to Obi-Wan, an astromech droid serving drinks at Jabba's palace is bumped into by Boba Fett, spilling one of his drinks from his tray. But before it can hit the ground, the droid, named R5-D4, is able to reach out with his mind and turn the drink back in its upright position and serve it to Jabba the Hutt. Thankfully, nobody had noticed what had just happened, as it had gone by so fast. And uh, One day, R5 removed his restraining bolt with the force, and force persuaded the Gamorrean guards to let him leave. Skippy wandered the desert for days in search of his destiny until he finally was picked up by a Jawa sandcrawler. There he had visions of Darth Vader and Princess Leia and met R2-D2 and C-3PO. Eventually the sandcrawler stopped, took all the droids out, and lined them up side by side in front of Owen Lars and Luke Skywalker. Skippy immediately sensed the force in Luke and persuaded Owen to choose him. Skippy was ecstatic at the undoubtable destiny that lay before him and Luke. However, R5 soon envisioned that, without Luke, stormtroopers would come and take R2 two back to Vader, where he would be destroyed and Leia would be killed, leading to a chain reaction of horror that will include the rebellion being destroyed, R5's memory being wiped after C-3PO refuses to translate his rubbish, and Luke dying on Tatooine without, a forever, without ever fulfilling his destiny. R5 knew what he had to do, and suddenly set off a mild explosion inside himself, leading Luke to believe that he had a busted motivator. Skippy then used the force on C-3PO, telling Luke to buy R2 instead. Owen did so, leaving R5 to be destroyed by a stray storm Trooper Blast during later raid with nobody ever knowing the great deed that R5 had just done. Wow. <laughs> I love this story because... That's cool. I, I, do, I did have that issue. I have all those old Star Wars tales. Which is why I wanted R5... It's why he's my favorite droid and yes. why I wanted him in our wedding and I wanted him, him to break wedding, down yeah. halfway through and have the Jawas come out and, you know, and I took the ring from him. He was the ring bearer. And uh, because... He, to me, represents what I think so many nerds are, which are unsung heroes. It's like, even though that's not canon, yeah. I like to believe the story. And it, yeah. it, it's like, he's the almost famous of the droid world in yes. a weird way. But he's still, if that hadn't happened, then we wouldn't have gotten the story. So he's the fulcrum. He's, he's basically, you know, he's the first unsung domino that sets all this up. I love that. There's a good book they published recently called A Certain Point of View. And it's uh, 40 short stories um, that tell the story of A New Hope, but from ancillary character point of views. Like one of them is <laughs> the Dianoga is force sensitive and her name is Omi, I think. 
Um, and she, when she wraps her tentacles around Luke, she senses his, his force potential and then like lets him go. And there's a whole thing with that. And, and it's, it's just this, I don't think it's, it's official canon, but it's these conjectures by different authors about, um, other ways, the, what happened just off screen or just before, or a different way of looking at the scene in the movie, which is kind of like that, that short story about Skippy. That's pretty cool. And again, you know, it's. That's how rich the universe is. And even though it's not canon, that doesn't mean that it can't still inspire your imagination or affect us or get us engaged in the story. It's like your kid doesn't give a shit if it's like, oh, this isn't a fit. I mean, some kids might. But still, it's just like that storytelling to be able to find. And it's why I remember why I love the action figures so much. It's like, what the fuck is Hammerhead? You know, it's like who I can buy this action figure. Like they had the presence of mind to create action figures for characters that didn't even say anything. And those action figures were one of the biggest reasons why Star Wars was successful because they captured your imagination and then you had three years to go home and you played and you created and you told stories. That's what inspired people to do. Go home and tell stories. That's what D&D inspires people to do is tell your own stories. And the action figures were the tools to go do that. You had these little things in your pocket and you could go do whatever you wanted with them. And there were characters that you barely saw and you could tell the story of why they were there. And I think that's so important that that was another big thing that was happening in that, you know, 77 to 84 era was the explosion of merchandise, film-based merchandise and media-based merchandise from He-Man, all the stuff that you could take home. You have the, you have the, what they, the, the commercial slash cartoon, but then you could go experience it and play it your own God, way. I hadn't even, I had completely forgotten about that too. That, that whole other revolution happened as well. And people didn't yeah. really, I mean, toys before that were just like Lincoln logs, yeah. <laughs> a couple of megos, Digger, had, the dog. You had like, yes, yeah, a Marvel, a sit and spin, Marvel heroes in pajamas and a know, fucking BB gun. One or two GI Joes <laughs> with bad hair. It was, there was not a $6 million man. <laughs> yeah. But you could look through the back of his head and he had a little, yeah. his little eye, but that, it, that was through. a revolution right there. Think Lego, also you know, like think about like, upgrade from from Lincoln Logs to Lego. But I think it was. I'm sure there was also you know, culturally it had something. To, it had a lot to do with where our parents' generation was at. You know, the the baby boom, the baby boomers coming out of the greatest generation. It's like you know they had um, uh, a handful of years to sort of. I don't know. It, it's. Every generation, I feel like, gets a little bit it more is. of an extended like adolescence. The early 60s. Like yeah. they had the, they had teenagers started to have disposable income. They had jobs. And they, they were actually starting to market things to them. That coincided with the explosion of you know, what was going on in, in music in the early 60s. And in a, in a, in a post-Vietnam War, war yeah. era, I'm sure you know, parents are wanting kids to feel safe. And it's like we're out of war. You know, it's like we, we got through World War II, we limped out of the Vietnam War, we're like, let's just give our kids toys, let's make them happy, let's give them the childhood that we didn't necessarily have because we all thought, you know, because of the Cold War, you know, because of, you yeah. know, there was going to be some massive nuclear, yeah. uh, you know, annihilation. And so, you know, we're making a little more money, let's, let's, let's give our kids the luxury lives that we didn't necessarily have. Even the music of that era has a... A, a romantic escapism to it. There's a lot of fanciful pop and all that. It's, it's all was part of that that moment. I think it's it definitely has the, psycho- the psychological analysis of it. I'm sure it had something to do with the the impending nuclear apocalypse. <laughs> but that's why you know 
and then a lot of us grew up to be able to explore our fandoms in such interesting ways and it sort of it be in service to our childhood selves and be able to try to manifest the you know the best or most positive or the whatever kind of version of those things when we when we were kids and it is interesting to me that this book that you had a part in putting together the D&D book which by the way is called Art and Arcana Visual History that there wasn't really anything like it before which is kind of mind blowing to me i mean i'm sure there were you know there were other little bits of D&D yeah. history but nothing this comprehensive and to tell the story through the art is such a great point of view in the history of it because that's part of what drove it was in capturing the the imagination and engaging because, you know, we didn't have moving video screens. Yeah, now you could go watch YouTube for five minutes and understand how the game was played. Yeah. You could watch Critical Role and you're like, oh, that's what it is. But a Critical Role is an incredible, like, you see it now and you go, well, yeah, of course, what a great idea. You know, it's like a group of really talented, funny people who yeah. are voice actors that are so, that know the game and now are basically like the voice of a generation of D and D people. And of that's just one way to play successful. it. That's, yeah. that's one way to play the game, which is wonderful. They're just good storytellers. Great story, and you love these characters, and it spawned all this this community and this fan art and everything. And it's a real force. And you know, you look at the visual history of the game back in back in the beginning. It was so abstract and so weird to people. Like what? What actually is it that the art was like cave painting? It was so basic that it said, oh, you can go stab this guy in the back and steal his money purse. <laughs> that's it. Like, that's what the art told you how the game was to be played. You look at the, the, the famous player's handbook cover, and yeah, that, pic- that painting had to tell you what the game was. It was like, here, we murdered some lizard people. We're going to put their bodies on an altar. This guy's cleaning the blood off his sword. There's a wizard talking to him about what the next steps are. There's other guys perusing a map. There's people dividing treasure. There's these other guys up on the, the eye, this jeweled eye of this statue ripping its, ripping its uh, gemmed eye out, not, not realizing there might be a, a curse invoked. It just shows you in this broad space space like this is what the game could be it's yes the perfect intersection of fantasy and math (laughs) yes and art and the art had to do that you know and right now you see the art and it's majestic it's cinematic they look like um concept art for for a movie you know and it's a different time because now we know more what the game is but back then it had it was very rudimentary and fundamental in order to like explain the abstract but there was something also very connective about much in the way that like when you watch a YouTube video and it's very kind of down and dirty and gritty and kind of yeah. and the more kind of amateurish it looks very the more homemade. authentic but the more authentic it is and that original D&D art just felt like every kind of doodles in your notebook be kind of be, yeah. anyone who had like a modern a moderate interest in drawing it was like that it's like the characters weren't perfectly constructed but it was the shape of the thing and there was something kind of cool about it yeah. that would then sort of go on later to become like you know that napoleon dynamite aesthetic yes <laughs> you know and it was a catch-all for norse mythology um like all these different creatures greek creatures and traditional fantasy and tolkien stuff and it all all became part of this catch-all this quirky catch-all where anything could go and i think that's what what's so unique and fascinating about early 
D and D art because they incorporated everything from all types of folklore and. And then the art got fucking amazing. Then it got. Then Then it was like, oh, okay, now we have like professional painters. Then they got money because the original art, um, they're paying one or two dollars an image. They had a hundred dollar art budget for the original (laughs) D and D. Like literally one hundred dollars was all they could spare for the artists. And two of the artists were uh, women that Gary knew, and the other two were teenage boys. And so he just tapped into who had the most skill around him and commissioned them. They're like, you have two weeks, go draw 40 pictures. And some of it was swiped. They would look at early issues of Marvel Comics, and they're tracing a Doctor Strange or or Nick Fury, but putting a sword in his hand instead of a gun. And those became these really foundational images in the, in the early pamphlets. So um, – it was more acceptable then. It was more affectionate. They're like, oh, I love this comic book, and I like this pose of this guy on a horse. So, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna swipe it. How much direction are they getting? Where it's like, go make a cobalt, or go make a beholder. Like, are like they- well, here's a good example with beholder. Gary uh, handwritten notes where it's a central eye with ten eye stalks. So, uh, the artist went off and, and drew an image, and we we heard this image existed, and we we struggled to track it down. We even went to the artist himself, and he said. He didn't recall ever drawing it, but we found it, and it's called a we call it a ground beholder. That's what it's known as. So the the creature, the beholder, is not floating. Gary didn't mention that. It's just rooted to the ground like a roper. If you've ever played D anD D with with these large tentacles, but they're eye stalks, and it's on page thirty eight of the book, and it's like it's called Big Eye, and it's um, Gary's notes are on on the images says don't use no. <laughs> So Tiamat, he literally said, you know, that it's a, it's a five-headed dragon and these are the colors and go. So where do you look to that? There's nothing like that prior. You know, okay, this is what dragons look like, but where are the wings? How are the legs? Even, even in Lord of the Rings, they're like, what, is a, what does a dragon really look like mm-hmm. in, in this world? Um, the verbal, visual vernacular of the game wasn't fully formed and established. So... It went through an evolution, and we do these these call outs in the book and these subsections called evolutions, um, where we'll look at some of the famous creatures like mind flayers or owl bears or beholders or even the characters like Strahd, and we'll, we'll look at the way they evolved through their inclusion of the game. But the most important creatures that evolved and stuck around since original D and D or relatively, you know, the early days, like Beholder, is probably the most important monster IP birthed from this game. Um, obviously, they have orcs and dragons and all that, but original D and D type IP. You've got mind flayers and oozes and owl bears and stuff like that. But the, but the beholder is the most iconic, I think, because it's also the most deadly. Yeah. And but yeah, the first drawing, you know, he left off the fact that it was, should be floating, or maybe he saw that and realized I need to make it floating. But it wasn't in his original notes to make it a hovering beast. And so uh, then. In the, I guess in the sort of mid to late 80s, then you have the D&D animated show, which of course I watched. That was in 1983 in conjunction with Marvel. And it only ran for, I think it was 26 or 27 yeah, no, episodes. Ranger, I, I am a massive fan of, of that show. And it's surprisingly, I mean, it's predictable. And you have Venger getting constantly defeated. But they go to some interesting places with the characters, especially in that... In, in um, the proposed final episode, which never got made, there's a real schism in the group, and they really handle it like a character, like a D and D adventuring party would would handle it. Well, know? I thought it was I thought it was an interesting, and now that I obviously am older and have more perspective on it, because obviously we haven't really gotten the D and D movie that we need. No, and so 
Uh, Again, that's a challenge. But that, but that, but the way to tell that story is to make Dungeon Master a character, to make him a character in the thing, and then you're sort of watching a, an adventure rather than trying to make it like first person in in, in the sense that you know that we're going to tell this particular story and that's why it's hard to make a movie. Yeah. But just a series of adventures of mini campaigns as they're trying to fight Venger. And my favorite episode was where all their weapons lose all their power. So they have to go to where their weapons were forged. Oh, and yeah. then they like kick the shit out of Venger because they, all their weapons are like charged. Supercharged. They're supercharged. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's a and I and I think it's a show that still. I just re, I, just, I rewatch it every year or two. I just rewatched the whole cycle of it. I'm a massive fan of it. I think the D and D being translated under the un, into other mediums has um, there's some challenges because you know it's, while they developed the show for uh, Saturday morning cartoons in the early '80s, Gary was in Los Angeles developing D and D movie, and he's watching all these movies like Conan and Excalibur. Beastmaster, everyone's having success. And his movie proposal was very much like the animated series where kids were brought into another world and from Earth, kind of like Masters of the Universe. You know, they're crossing. Mm -hmm. We all know you don't need to do that to make a successful (laughs) D&D movie. Just because it's a game doesn't mean it has to be a game. Um, and the other thing is, is they're not fully formed heroes. You're used to, what's great about D and D is you start at level one, you make a lot of mistakes, you get your ass kicked, you nearly die. You roll ones. What does that mean? Like somebody sets you up with a great 20 and then you critically fail. That has to be part of the narrative, not like in a literal way, but that's the type of heroes we're dealing with. They I think aren't it's like, it's not like mission impossible where right. he does everything perfectly. That's not a D and D hero. <laughs> you can't do that. No. And also, I think the other thing that makes it very challenging is that um, there's no, there's not one story. There are as, even though that there are set campaigns, but the way that people play D and D is so personal because Custom every group is too. basically a band, and it's and it's this the specific chemistry and dynamic of that particular group, how that DM tells the story, how those players care play, how they relate to one another. And so there are near, you know, there are as many D and D ultimately dialects as there are people who play. And so, how do you find one that represents everyone? Because then a lot of people are going to see that and they're going to go, "Oh, that's not how I. That's not how I envision. That's not how I play." And how do you make something that somehow doesn't alienate the nerds who play, but also doesn't alienate the broader audience that they're going to need to support making a large budget D&D movie. I think there's potential to do it like Marvel. There were so many realms in Dungeons and Dragons from Spelljammer and Dark Sun and Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms, etc. You already have these uniquely themed and textured things, just like the Marvel, all their movies, their characters before they team up, they all have very specific tones and rules to their worlds. Um, D&D already has that programmed into it. It is a hugely famous brand. Everyone knows Dungeons & Dragons, but you don't readily know character IP. You're not naming Drist off the top of your head and going, I love those Drist stories. Although like Crystal Shard and that trilogy is a great Forgotten Realms tale. Uh, You look at the Dragonlance books. Um... Those are a great place to start. These could all be their own thing. They're all very different. They have an incredible wealth of things published, the novels and the hundreds, you know, in these different realms that they could tap into. Not that they'd have to, but it could at least be a starting point, an inspiration. You know, I think they should almost find... I don't want to see Jumanji. I don't want to see <laughs> D&D Jumanji. You know what I mean? 
it's mean, very disposable. Like it doesn't have to be a game where kids enter it like a game and you don't have to load it up with all these stars. And it made a lot of money and it was a fun movie, the new Jumanji. But I don't think that's what you have to – you shouldn't do that. No, you shouldn't, you shouldn't load it up with I, – I don't – I understand why studios load things up with stars because it's easier to sell and market that way. But in the same way that – they cast famous people in Star Wars movies. It's like Star Wars is the star. You don't need because you don't need any the whole of that. time it's like you know I there are certain actors that I like a lot, but I can't stop seeing them in just in Star Wars garb. It's like, like it wasn't oh. Jack Nicholson as the Emperor. It was Ian McDiarmid, and right. he just did an incredible performance as the Emperor in Return of the Jedi. Like right. they didn't go after who's the biggest star in '83, right? Um, that philosophy has changed, and I don't think it's ruined anything. Um, they think they're adding value to stuff uh, by having them. It doesn't hurt it in any way. They're not casting people with heavy stigmas of other franchises. No, but I do think I do think it hurts a little bit in the sense that it Star Wars is meant to be immersive, and anything that takes you out of the universe and so when you see all no names virtually as leads of course and so when you see a famous person you're immediately like oh that's a famous person in a crazy wig with a crazy out like it it just immediately kind of pulls you out of it in a little bit it's like i don't need to see famous people play these characters i want to see unknown i want to i just want to be immersed with the characters you know like rather than you know um like al guinness but those people watching star wars hadn't seen like you know, bridge on the river. People are going to go see star Wars. If famous people aren't in it, like it's the one time where you don't need to rely on that for international sales. Like people are going to go see a star Wars movie and, you know, D and D I hope that if they do do it, I mean, maybe the thing that they do is they just same thing with Harry Potter. Right. Like I looked at that new poster and I still have yet to see the movie. I'm, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, but it's like, who will rise up? I'm like, I don't know any of these 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 people and it was just I couldn't even see their faces because it was this wide vista thing and I didn't know who the characters even were but I know they just loaded up lots of people and I mean, obviously there were famous British that. actors in the Harry Potter movies but not but as the main need, but it doesn't need that right you know like is that is that the best way to sell a Wizarding World movie I wonder I wonder with D and D if the thing to do is just to like go to like Critical Role and be like all right Matt Mercer we're gonna just give you a bunch of money you guys just play a campaign and we won't air it anywhere and then we'll just build the movie off that that's campaign it's a, a healthy way to look at the story like you so many unexpected things happen yes, when you play because then it organically would funny. unfold and it then it would then it would sort of it would be it would feel real and not like how do we script this Dungeons and Dragons movie it's like it would be a very natural it's like but you, you basically want, you're rolling the movie you want the stewards and the people shepherding this to be people who honestly love and get it not the people that are just like oh this is cool i see an opportunity here i'm going to i i was wanted to play that when i was a kid you want the people that love it to be stepping into these roles with star wars with all these movies you want the people that honestly thoroughly live and breathe it or else it's not going to be what it needs to be. The, the person who did the forward in your book was Joe Manganiello, who is... Uh, He's a hero. Joe, he, Joe, Joe is the is greatest. fucking hero. I love the fact that Joe is just smashing stereotypes about what it means... To be a Dungeons & Dragons fan or a I nerd. Still think he's, I still think maybe he's a little scrawny dude in a mech suit. <laughs> his chest opens his up. His chest opens up. There's a little guy who pushes up his yes, glasses. Yes, 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 yes. The men in pants. black style. There's, yeah. a, there's, a, there's a tiny little alien 
inside his, I mean his, his program's gonna glitch and he's like yeah 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 his arm's gonna blow off and he'll have to pick it up and yeah. like sew it back on and Sofia Vergara is actually an astrophysicist who <laughs> and a roboticist who's like built keep, him who's built who's like who really keeps him functioning know, yeah 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 so it, 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 it he, he's been such a powerful voice um, in this world as well and so beautifully and unashamedly been so like em, you know embraced the community and I think you know, voices like that help normalize this stuff and help people realize, like, the, you know, D&D isn't just, like, a f- nerd thing that nerds do for fun. I think it is, a, I think it is an essential part of, um, of social interaction that we are drama- at it, losing at a dramatic rate because it's just too convenient to be on the Internet or play games on the Internet or, you know, on our yes. phones, on our Xboxes, on our Switches, or PS4s, whatever. And... I think it is. A, I think it is absolutely vital that we get people, kids, to play in D and D groups because I do think it teaches fundamental skills that we are losing. Problem because solving, of convenience, collaboration, putting your mind together to figure something. Imagination, out. It's not all about killing. Yeah. Imagination. It's that's what it is. You and don't have to imagine anything if you're playing a fucking kick-ass game. I mean, you know that has you know. An insane graphics engine where you don't have to. It's and just you, like all and right you there. You think that's open borders? You think that's infinite? But there is a finite wall built somewhere by a programmer, and Dungeons and Dragons is the final frontier for gaming. It's infinite. Anything you can imagine, or say, or do, you can do. There isn't. Uh, nothing's going to limit you from doing that. And you just right. work together to figure it out. That's what I think is why the game will continue to endure because of the that the boldness of it. Um, but like Joe. Uh, what's wonderful about what Joe's doing too, he's like, he started his death saves line, which is, um, a line of clothing, which is like D and D streetwear because he's like, this is what I want to wear. Like, where's the stuff that I want to wear? It's like everything that he wanted or wanted to do as a kid or a young man. He's going to go do it now. I want to go play it. I want to go talk about it. I don't want to be maligned for playing this game. I want to go openly say this is what I love. Like he got to go on all these great talk shows and, and be a spokesperson for it. And, it's and no one's going to be like, ha 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 nerd. Who's going to be like, that? Oh, um, uh, I appreciate that you like these things. Very large muscle man. Joe it, is it any different than people that do fantasy football and they're crunching their numbers and like, I'll trade you so-and-so for so-and-so. Joe's really the, my bodyguard of, like remember the movie My Bodyguard? Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's like the My Bodyguard of the of this community, where it's like no one's gonna go, yeah, what a fucking, you know, they're gonna go, yeah, oh, oh, he's, oh, oh, okay, oh, he plays, oh, well, that's all right, oh, all right, I'll check that out. I mean, this book is stunning. It's absolutely stunning. It's over four hundred pages. The artwork is incredible. The history is incredible. There's a lot of nostalgia in it. Right then, now, it's fifty four percent off on Amazon. People, <laughs> I mean, this. Uh, again, not to sound all QVC, but what a fucking great holiday gift or what a great – because it's a gorgeous coffee book table and the cover is so – it just it, – the cover feels like a D&D. It feels like a D&D book, like a like a, a, a like the, you actually – The classic Larry Elmore. There's a Barnes & Noble edition, which is actually red instead of black bordering it, which is a true throwback to that old uh, red box. I I had this idea to make this book and I said, where is the book? It doesn't exist. I've never made a book before, but I wanted to just – do it because it, there was a huge gap missing in in the culture yeah, and you made a thing. and i i reached out and we have this tremendous team michael whitwer i was a fan of his book empire of imagination is a bio on gary gygax and i said hey where do i start or do you want to do this with me and he's like fuck yeah let's do this we got john peterson who is the foremost expert on rpgs and most specifically D and a lot of his personal collection in terms of letters and correspondence and stuff behind the scenes things are in here and sam whitwer 
um, Michael's brother is an actor, and Sam was my Star Wars game master. And he's like, dude, you're you're doing a book with my brother? How do you fucking know my brother? I'm in on this. So we formed this really balanced party and went and told this this story together. And it's a real curated, almost yearbook, time machine. Uh, there's so much we couldn't put in it. But every single image, every single spread, we had to think about and vet and really have a conversation about. And it was rewritten after we wrote it, just visually and layout. So we wanted to be a very comprehensive and definitive thing. And what do you get your, your dungeon master who tires weekly telling me, crafting stories? He doesn't need more dice, you know? <laughs> he doesn't need more whiz kids. Sure, get him that too. But this is something that nobody nobody has, you know? So we're really proud of it because it ends up being the book that we wanted on all of our shelves personally. And that's why I'm so happy holding it in my hand when it's done. I'm like, wow, this is what I wanted. It's an accomplishment. And nobody fucked it up. Like when I make a movie, (laughs) when you make a movie, everyone says, how can I fuck this up? There's 200 people you have to deal with and you're hiring people. It's ego, ego management and you're trying to weed out bad people. And this is the first time I've made something that's actually been marketed properly. Like, it says Dungeons and Dragons, but could we just sell it as something else? I've never heard of filmmaking as just a way to weed out bad people out of like 200. That's all I do. I cast people. I don't just cast who's best. You have to cast the people who aren't going to contaminate the creative process. People who aren't all about themselves. Like everyone you hire on a, on a a movie that you're going to work with for two years it's it's like a, a vetting process I, i'm done with working with bad people i want to work with good people who are going to go above and beyond and in this our publisher 10 speed which is the division of penguin random house we kept pushing it it was bigger we had double the images they asked for we put our own money into licensing we said we want this to be as big and, and as good as possible we have one shot to do this and they got behind it every step of the way and when they when they marketed the book the book and pushed it out they literally got it intrinsically and supported all our ideas. And like, wow, imagine listening to the people who created something that know it inside and out. <laughs> and they know the audience that it's going you to know because the they're audience. in the audience. Maybe it, learn how to talk to them. And it was it was refreshing, you know, to to have that type of collaboration within our team and with the larger team and the publisher and with Wizards who is our licensee who gave us access to troves they're such nice people over there the kindest people these are great custodians of the game who care about the the players and care about the community and and it's not they were so supportive of this book because they're never like how can we exploit this there's so many new players good people and all these new players they don't know that maybe the adventure they're playing right now was based on something earlier you know Waterdeep wasn't just invented uh for this dragon heist, Waterdeep existed back in 87 when Ed Greenwood published, you know, the Forgotten Realms and Waterdeep's on his original map. So all these things have a history, you know, you're playing Curse of Strahd. Well, that's been reincarnated many times. So as the character of Strahd and things like the Tomb of Horrors, you know, that was in Ernie Klein's Ready Player One. You know, that's like the original uh, challenge at level one. I think it's hard to go wrong when the people running the thing are in the demographic or fans of the thing. They're all fans. And, and that... because that there's such a it it just makes it holistically more authentic more engaging because they know as fans like what they would want to see and it's it's just so much better than you know than corporate think yeah what's what's something that you learned from this process that blew your mind like was there anything that you uncovered where you were like holy shit I never or I always wanted to know that um 
there's there's lots of little stories in there which were so fascinating. I, I think one of the most important things was looking back at the early artists and trying to do justice to them and tell the story that was never told. Because there are all these famous guys like Elmore and Eastley when the game exploded big in the late 70s and early 80s that got, that got a lot of due um, adulation. But the early artists that constructed the basic visual language of the game like Cookie Corey and Tracy Lesh and we got to publish in our special edition the original Tomb of Horrors from 1975 it was played at Origins 1 and it was it was a tournament you'd go with 15 people and you sit around a table and they ran four tables and they'd send everybody into this this murder den and you could <laughs> you'd see who survived it was the skull of the dungeon Tomb of Horrors was to kill you and we published the original version, which predates the one they published in 1978 by three years. And it's got the original art in there that every single panel you see in that book is redrawn in 1978. But it's almost exactly like what came out of this, this teenager's head, which Gary tasked me said, hey, I need this in two weeks. Go draw this quick. I need this whole module. And that was really the first standardized adventure he had so you had to have these 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 drawings that would underpin the experience at four different tables so it could be standardized and everyone could experience the same thing and i also love the 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 great kingdom which was the shared universe that dave and gary had before the game was ready to be published they would pass back and forth oh this castle was sieged and these people died and they'd mark it on their map and it was a map that coexisted like you know, like in video games now or on you on these servers and everyone's like part of that same map. But they were doing this virtually through be a pen pal or meeting up at a convention and they denoted on a map. And that became the first shared universe. And I think that's also great seeing what these guys conceived and how they tried this idea, which we take for granted now, was something that they were trying to achieve with very limited tools. Yeah, I mean, this game is so much the foundation of so many different disciplines of creativity. Ideas of experience, experience. And leveling up, and character backstories. It's all we take for granted. But now. also storytelling, learning how to storytell, again, learning how to play together, learning how to be a community, learning how to create, think creatively, but learning how to improvise, but also... You know, if you want to paint character, if you want to paint figurines, like that's a whole other thing. If you want to learn how to draw, if you want to, you know, so create many ways visualizations. to You're into cartography. You can draw your maps. Yes. Oh my God. Absolutely. There's so many different ways. Yeah. So it, it it really is the launching point of so many different cosplay. Things. Is a huge thing now with it. Too. Well, of course. Of course. Yeah. So, for, did you ever meet Gary? No, I never met Gary. You never met Gary. I've got to meet his son Luke, who's a tremendous uh, guy and who's kind of. Helping to perpetuate the the legacy of Gary. Do you always? I always play wizards, magic users. They're always. I love wizards. They're it's my not favorite. called Sorcerers of the Coast. It's called Wizards <laughs> of the Coast. People. It's not called Warlocks of the it's West. Not it's not, it's not Barbarians of the Coast. Wizards it's are the wizards. preeminent magic user. I mean, I, I, I. To me, I don't like to. I don't like to get in and just beat the shit out of things or knock stuff down. I, I don't. You know, I. I love this sort of cre. I love the creative um, spell casting, problem solving. Every like, session's different. You're not just using your arrow to do one thing. What spells am I? What spells can I use to creatively solve this problem? Where you really, I think, have to think a high level. It's like, oh, can yeah. I? Do something that creates this thing that robs this thing of oxygen. How do you change so a social can... situation? Yes. How do you change a battlefield? They really are. How can you enhance your your compatriots? Wizards are, and they have more spells than anybody by far. There's some there's a versatility to them that really challenges you as the player. I think to um, 
make the most of it. I mean, all, think, all are yeah. welcome. Those are just the that's that's. No, I'm playing, just, that, that's I'm playing a Gloomstalker Ranger right now, which I love, and that's totally different. And I'm also playing a um, half orc zealot barbarian in the game with Joe. And I never play frontliners who just smash things, but it's it's also very cool. What alignment do you like? Um. Normally neutral good, chaotic good. I don't really wade into games trying to play evil characters. Right. Um, I might do things that are off that track and then grapple with the the alignment ramifications. But I, I don't go into it trying to be evil. I used right. to play with a kid growing up, and all he would do is try and wait until you had your character like five months in and then oh, just murder no. them. No, that sucks. Or that, oh, that like, it's like sucks. Ultima Online. There'd be these these players that would just roam around and just murder people and steal their shit. And there's nothing worse than that. I just I just don't like that. So I played a lot of lawful good characters when I was growing up and now I, I sort of see like why that's it's kind of boring because you're so tied to rules. Like you have to, you really do have to follow rules. But even the chaotic good has like, chaotic good has great. a rule to it though. Because you're like, are you really being chaotic here? Or are you starting to be linear in the way you're approaching it? And that's that's something you got. But you're right. Lawful lawful good definitely has... Some limitations. Almost like written laws that you have to you know, adhere to. I, I should try some lawful good. I haven't played that in a while. It might just be fun just for yeah. fun. Yeah. Just to... I want to play a paladin soon. I haven't played a paladin in many, many years. So, uh, finally... You know, do we have some? Because you know, listen, I don't. I don't want people to think that we were just that we're crapping on fandom. I'm not. We weren't. No, no. We're, I, we're earlier in the sense of like of what that. There's is. toxicity out there. I want to. I want to be positive about it, and I want to try to figure out a way to be proactive about it. You know, it's just. It's not that you have opinions. It's really just the way that you <laughs> are. You are. You know. Are you are you chaotic evil in expressing your opinions because you just want everything to burn for the sake of burning? And so, you know, like what are some positive messages for fandom that we can focus on, or ways that we can be better fans? I would say don't neuter your opinions, but there's no need to. You know, to lace them with hyperbole. To other There's no need to also entrench it and let you can you can not like the same thing, but you could still coexist and be friends. You know, you could have different opinions politically or on, or on uh, about a, a product or a game or a movie, and you could still coexist. You know, well, I mean? there has to be a, there's a core level um, civil discourse, and I think that's that's all. I think you should have your opinions. You should express your opinions, but there's a way to do that which also isn't destructive. But I also think that, you know, with the with the exception of, you know, some some very, you know, obvious opinions, but for most opinions, I feel like the the thing that's great about them is that it's not just these are my opinions, get the fuck off my property. It's like I have this opinion, you have this opinion. How can we create some sort of a chemistry that's greater than the sum of the parts of us? And get to somewhere and, deeper. Or get to somewhere deeper, understand each other, not necessarily have to agree with everything, but at least, you know, again, that I think that's community. I don't think community is everyone agreeing with everything that you say. Community is, so right. is, yeah. is diversity of, of opinion and diversity of of uh, of everything, you know, but and, it coexists. But coexisting because that diversity makes us greater as a whole than just living in this little cul-de-sac where yes, you know where everyone in, agrees with your where one. the internet has convinced us that we, you know, like we can go down rabbit holes that basically create these confirmation bias bubbles where we don't ever have to go outside the thing that we believe, and that's very limiting because there's no growth in that, and 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 
when th- something's not growing, it's dying. So <laughs> you are killing yourself <laughs> slowly by not, by not, ex- you know, I'm exaggerating, but by not, you know, exploring other opinions or other points of view or trying to understand or trying to create, you know, and it's like, and, and, and this again is why I think something like D and D is so important because it forces people to come together. Well, they choose to come together to, you know, to, of, you know, different types, different backgrounds to create, you know, a little mini community. And that I think is ultimately, you know, if, 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 if our culture could essentially, if we could play culture things the way we did a campaign of D and D, you know, we, you know, that was what our author team was a microcosm of that. We wanted to, to, it would have been very different if each of us just wrote this individually, but we wanted to hear each other out come at it from different perspectives, incorporate those perspectives, and then find a shared synonymous voice. Um, we all have very different point of views on this art and what should be in the book or what shouldn't be. But it was such a civil and organic and beautiful process that made, that's what made the book extra special. And I, and I think with, with, with um, online community, uh, it's, it's the kind of thing, like I was saying earlier, it's like, you know, treat the stranger greater than an equal, you know, and hear it out. I, most of my Twitter feed, if I look at it or Facebook, I don't agree with 90% of what people post on it, <laughs> but I do like hearing the, uh, the difference of opinion. And I do like having conversations about it privately. And I love when people post on my Facebook and like, Hey, what do you think about this? And this, I, I love talking about Star Wars. I'll talk about all different. I want to see the way you saw the movie. I want to hear the way you experienced it without going like my way is right. And you're a oh, fucking I, idiot. But I love that conversation. I want to hear someone that saw it so different. Like I didn't interpret that at all. And I think that's fascinating that you can take something that's been around for 40 something years and experience it in different ways. And those are so foundational and, and almost, um, religious to people and that you have all these different ways to, to look at it, but it's not unhealthy, but there's a way to go about that conversation. I think that's what we should all strive for before you go hit send or tweet <laughs> just double check it. Well, I think it's all, I think it's important to, before you hit send, cause we we're so accustomed now to just doing it emotionally Yeah, is, is, is sort of take a minute, read it later and really ask yourself a tough question like, is this constructive? Is this moving closer to something good? Or is this just destructive? If Is this just for my ego? And sometimes we're just going to post for our ego, and that's fine. It's like that Arabic proverb. Um, is, it, is it kind? Is it true? Is it necessary? Does it check all those boxes before I hit send? A lot of times there's emails, and I'm like, I'm not going to respond right now. So much I'm going to wait 10 minutes. Now I'm going to wait till tomorrow morning. And also, <laughs> am I missing something in the translation? Like we're, we're taking, it's shrunk down to 140 characters and then expanded like with water. And then we were supposed to, Oh, did they really mean that? Is this being, well, we're running it through our own yeah. filter baggage and we want sometimes we want to hear those things. We want to be triggered by those things. So step back from it, look at what's really being said and then take a beat and write, write thoughtfully. We're putting in all the frog DNA yes. <laughs> on the dinosaur DNA. Like we're getting, we're getting like a bro, you know, Text is just one form of communication, but it's not the whole form of communication. Yeah. So we're filling in all of the gaps. There's no eye contact, own, body language, nothing. Nothing. It's all no void context. We don't yeah. know this person. There's no nuance. There's you no don't know something. what they just experienced. They don't know what you just experienced. You so might read just, a text after you stub your toe, and you're going to react totally different than if you were just chilling on a beach. So let's, I guess in summary, let's play a game about dragons and monsters to learn how to be more human. 
<laughs> Amen. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Kyle. It was a pleasure and Please an honor. Jamie, Thank we you. said hello. I will. Lydia's she around sends the corner. Her love. Yeah, we we send it back. Awesome. Lydia's around the corner. Uh, and so I'm sure she's going to want to give you a hug before you leave. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, keep playing D&D. Keep watching Star Wars. All those things we love. So I'm going to roll to see if this podcast Let's went do well. It. I just have a standard D20. Is that enough? Should I, should I roll? Perfect. Okay. What, do it's, like I, a, it's like a death save. No modifiers. <laughs> so do I, is there a saving throw? Like what's the throw that I need to make above? Like a 12 or something? Or, or an 8? Like what, what? Oh, I'd say over a 10. Over a 10? Uh, yeah. Okay, let's see. I'm going to roll it. Here we go. Motherfucker. I got rolled a 9. Oh. Wait, I'm going to take a re-roll. 18! Whoa, yes. <laughs> but you thought it was going to be a 9, but it, but really we navigated out of that situation and ended up being an 18. <laughs> I'm awesome. so excited and proud of you for this Thank book. Thank you. I'm so glad you like it, man. My God. It's just for you know, anyone that's ever played it. And I love the ads. We have 90 ads in there, which just really awesome. take you back to the moment. The smell of the book is great. <laughs> this episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. You have just listened to the ID10T podcast number 989 with Kyle Newman. And now it's time for some word salad wrap. And uh, I, I just loved the conversation with him about fandom and positivity and being able to be honest without destroying. Um, but I think it's a much, there's a much larger conversation about, uh, about doing real world things. You know, it's so easy to be trapped <laughs> in our in our digital bubbles. You know, I mean, it's there's enough brain stimulation there to trick us into think that we're connecting with people or accomplishing stuff, and and to and to a degree we are, but we are evolved <laughs> to have real world experiences. We have to, I mean, I, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do, but I'm recommending as, uh, to you that, uh, look into doing real world things. Listen, I get it. You know, I get lazy at night when I get home, my wife and I, we go off in our days and, and we do whatever we do. We do our work stuff. And then it feels fucking great to be in pajamas by like six o'clock and knowing that the rest of the night is open, we're going to eat dinner and maybe just get in bed. You know, we have a TV that comes up out of it. It's on a stand. It like, it rises up and it just is at the foot of our bed. And it's so easy to not, to be in bed. Our bed is very comfortable. The cat curls up. We can have like the Nintendo switch there and put on, you know, like 
The Magicians or some show that we like to watch, and there is very little motivation to want to leave not only the house, but our bed. Um, so last night, um, Lydia had a friend who was in a play called, uh, it was a series of short scenes uh, called 10 More, and it was with the Skylight Theater on Vermont in Los Angeles. And, you know, I, I don't, it's just, it would have been easy to just say like, oh, you know, I'm tired. I don't feel like going, you know, I had a long day working or whatever, but it was important to Lydia that we go. And so I went and I'm so glad that we did. I saw so many amazing actors doing so many wonderful scenes and there just isn't anything like the experience of doing real world things. It's so, it is literally communal. I mean, it's funny that we talk about online communities and they are communities to a degree, but, there, but it's not like a – like a real-world community is just so much richer. Like I don't know. For me, I can tell the difference that I am now so much more appreciating connecting with things in, in real life. Does that make any sense? Do I sound like a lunatic? But it's so easy for your brain to talk you out of stuff because your brain just wants you to be comfortable in any given moment. And so it will tell you to do things that aren't necessarily good for you but because they feel comfortable in the moment. But – seek some discomfort because that's where the that's where some of the best stuff is and you have to kind of ignore your brain and I'm so glad I did because my brain said just stay at home you don't need to go and Lydia would have been fine if I had said oh I'm really tired I don't know if I feel like going she would have said okay that's fine or I'll just go myself and I'm so glad I went we had a wonderful date night um, we had some fun great inspiring stuff to talk about afterwards we talked about the scenes we talked about the actors um, the, the performances were so great and, you know, it was just a really fun experience. I guess that's what it is. You know, you can have maybe 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 I'm saying something without thinking about it. So maybe this won't be true. But but just try to go with me a little bit out on a limb here. You have interactions online, but you have experiences in the real world. And I'm not 100 percent sure that the digital interactions that we have fully count as experiences, experiences that shape us, experiences that tie us to other people, experiences that expand our horizons, experiences, by the way, online, we live in a confirmation bias bubble. <laughs> we seek out things we already believe. The internet delivers us stuff we already think we'll like, but the real world gives us the opportunity to branch out and explore and grow uh, and, and, and have a more holistic human experience. And so it seems so silly. I mean, this, I feel like we're in the fucking Jetsons right now, you know, where I'm like, step away from your button pushing, <laughs> you know, that I have to, it seems like such an obvious thing. Yeah, go out, go outside, get some vitamin D, get some sun, go have an experience, go talk to people in the real world, go, go to a show or, a, you know, even if it's a, go, go to free shows, whatever you can, there are free shows in your area that you can go to, go to things you wouldn't think you would normally want to experience to just have the experience to expand your horizons. You know, like that's why people travel. <laughs> so become a traveler in your own town, in your own community. We really do have to have to work up the, the, the muster to be travelers in our own communities because it's so easy to just stay, <laughs> to stay home in our digital bubbles. So I don't mean to preach at you too hard, uh, but I... It is something that I am also working on. And so I say this to you as I say it out loud to myself. 
that I appreciate the experience that I had last night. I love and appreciate my wife so much. And we came away from it going, why the fuck don't we do stuff like this more often, you know, to just have experiences. So go on and have your own experiences, even if it's just like once a week, just stretch a little bit and go to something that maybe your brain initially is like, oh gosh, I don't know if that sounds like something I'd want to do. Try it. You know what? If you don't like it, then you'll still have stuff to learn from it. You know, like it's not, you don't always have to love everything you do to gain, to gain knowledge and wisdom and experience from stuff, but it's just the having of the experiences, you know, worrying about whether you like something or not is so goal oriented. And again, you know, like the older I get, the more I realize it's about being process oriented and experience oriented, because that's, that's where the growth happens. Not so much in the attainment of the goal, whether or not a show was good or something was bad, like that's a that's a momentary thing. That's a fleeting thing. It's intangible. But the growth is the process. So embrace the process. Embrace real world experiences and embrace the fact that I appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening to World, World Salad Wrap uh, in the episode 989 with Kyle Newman. And uh, have a delightful week. All right. ID 10T scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. I feel like I was blindsided. Because it's a competition show. From the producers of Jury Duty and The Bachelor. We have scoured the earth for the 14 greatest reality contestants that were available during our production window. Comes a reality competition show about reality competition shows. Nobody has dared to find out who is the actual best at just being on a reality show. I'm your host, comedian Daniel Tosh. Is winner go home. Each episode, our contestants will face new challenges that will test their strength and lack of life skills for a chance to win two hundred million dollars. $200,000. Prepare, because it's about to be ugly crying. Lots of fighting. Tasha, I have to defend myself. Celebrating 25 years of reality TV with your favorites. I have diarrhea. You cannot do this to me. What in gay hell have I got myself into? The Goat, premiering on Freebie and Prime Video on May 9th.